You are listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope today's message inspires you. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect. You may have noticed there's a booth set up that's not normally here on a Sunday morning. And so we have a crew from, from Edmonton, from Fort Road Victory Church. They're a group called Life DTS, and they're a discipleship training program um, out of their local church there. And um, I have Joel here, and Joel's going to come up and, and share a bit about their program and who they are at Life DTS. Um, you know, they've been here this weekend. This is the third year they've come up to Cold Lake and served us. And they have such a, a generous heart. They come up and just serve in any way, shape, capacity um, that we provide for them. And uh, so we had youth on Friday nights, and they, they led us, led the whole evening, and it was a fantastic time. And then yesterday, we just got out into our community, and we just blessed people. We went and, and delivered some coffee and had some coffee cards and had some conversations uh, with people in our community. And, um, and just letting people know that we love them and that God loves them, that we're here if they need anything. And that we are a community church, and we're here for you. And um, so it was a great time. So I just want to invite Joel. This is Joel with Life DTS. Good morning, church. Well, I want to say thank you to Pastor Mark and Rhea for having us. They have also billeted the uh, ladies on the team. And I want to say a heartfelt thank you to Larry and Elaine for having the guys at their house. This is the second year we've been at Larry and Elaine's house. And if you have not had her oven-baked buns yet, I would encourage you to invite yourself to their place at a time that is convenient for them. Um... You know, I'm going to share a little bit about my story, um, just my testimony of how I got involved with Life DTS and what God has done through that. You know, about just over four years ago, I was sitting at my pastor's dining room table and I was telling him about how I was quitting my full-time teaching contract to pursue church ministry. And they were very excited, and, but he saw some things in me that needed to be adjusted. He saw some character issues that God... Um, needed to iron out before um, I was kind of like released to the wolves in ministry. Um, Ministry can be pretty volatile. I don't know if you know, if you've ever worked in a church, you know that crazy things can happen because when imperfect people come together and try and fulfill the Great Commission, sometimes it gets messy. So the pastors kind of looked at me and they said, well, Joel, we see these couple of issues and we think the best thing for you to do is go to... um, you know, our discipleship program and get your character solid before you launch into ministry. And so I was a bit surprised because I thought they were going to be announcing I was going to be on the preaching rotation. So it was slightly different than what I expected. Um, But nonetheless, I agreed and I got in there. And what God started to show me, you know, I learned a lot about myself in the first few months of being a student in in the the discipleship program. before the program, was, I was, if you knew me, I was an upbeat guy. I was hardworking what I wanted to be. I was enthusiastic. I knew how to perform. I was a drummer on the worship team. You know, I knew how to do things. But the problem was, 
You know, I, I never opened up about who I was. I never opened up about what I was feeling, what I was going through, what my weaknesses were. And the reason for that was because I had this really overwhelming fear of rejection inside of me. Um, maybe it's not uncommon. Maybe you're here and you've experienced this too. But when I was in elementary school, I went through a lot of rejection. I went through a lot of um, times when people said, you know what, you're like different from us. I was the shortest kid, so... I wasn't athletic like everybody else was. I tried really hard to be, but I just couldn't dunk like the guys who were, you know, this much taller than me. So it was really tough to fit in. And what ended up happening was, you know, it, it kind of shaped my beliefs in a sense that I felt that God would not be there for me. And I felt that as an extension, you know, the people that God had placed in my life as authority would also not be there for me, that they were also going to leave me they, they, that in my, in my key moment of need, they would abandon me. I had this belief. This is what I believed firmly. So I thought, you know what? If people are not going to accept me from who I am, maybe they'll keep me around for what I can do for them. And so I started to put all my worth in what I could do for people. My worth was in my performance. And I would try so hard to perform for people and say, did I do a good job? Can you tell me that I did a good job so that I feel worthy of something? And that's when I started to realize that, you know, this something wasn't right. And God started to work on my attitude. So enter Life DTS. We can play that promo video now. So enter Life DTS, and that's where this program comes in, and myself as a student, and I began to be aware of a lot of these character issues, a lot of these weaknesses that I had, and that really began the acceleration, or rather the, the intentionality, I will say, of my discipleship process. Um, I heard that a few weeks ago, Pastor Mark shared a message on don't despise the process that God has you in, so that was very much where I was at. Um, in my process, you know, I had this thing and let me just grab this real quick. So I'd be, this was me in the morning, right? I'm sitting here. Maybe you're like me, you know, come into work. So I was coming into life DTS and here's my coffee and an intern or a staff member would come up and ask me to do something. 
hey, can you set up this table? Hey, can you go clean this thing? And I would kind of look at them and I'd kind of nod and kind of look at my coffee cup and look back at them and shrug my shoulders as if to say, yeah, you know, I'm going to finish my coffee first and then if I have time, I'll get to it. And maybe you're looking at me like, okay, well, that's kind of a problem. And it was a problem, but I didn't know it was a problem. And the interns kind of had this joke, a running joke about me that I had the coffee cup um, that was always preventing me from doing something. And one of the hardest things I had to learn how to do was put down my coffee cup and go and do what they were asking me to do. And the reason why that was hard is, again, I had this distrust of authority. So God started to show me that, I, that my attitude towards them was, was wrong. And the reason why I had this attitude was because, well, again, all my worth was in what I did. It was in my performance. So if somebody in authority was asking me to do something that was small and insignificant to me, then I thought that they were saying that I am small and insignificant. So God began to work on this area of my life, and he began to show me that I had to be more forthcoming about my weaknesses, and I had to begin to trust him to take care of me. I had to begin to trust him for what I was looking for from other people. Because my worth is only found in God. Who I am is only found in God. If I want to know how important I really am, then at the end of the day, it's not about my performance. It's not about my job. It's not about my success. It's about who God made me to be. And so here I am. I'm in this process. And you know, I, I still struggled through doing things with humility and excellence because to me, well, you're asking me to do something that nobody's going to see. Who cares? I'm just going to do it quickly so I can get it done and over with. And God was trying to show me, you know what? I've created you to be better than that. And so if I'm really being honest, I still struggle with humility and excellence even today. Sometimes I get assigned something and I'm like, why am I being assigned this little thing to do? And like, it, that's why... We can't despise our process because in my reasoning, I'm like, I should have had this ironed out four years ago, but here I am still talking about how God is taking me through this again and again. And hopefully I've grown a little bit in the process, but there it is. You know, James 5, 16 says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. And one of the biggest things I had to learn to do was be vulnerable with people again and know that, you know what? Hurt is inevitable. But the vulnerability, the connection, and the love that you get from being vulnerable is worth the hurt that you might experience. And as I began to be open about my weaknesses and vulnerabilities, I was walking out James 5.16. As I was talking about what I did wrong, God was healing me. And that began the process of healing in my life. Um, today, if you ask me, okay... What's this program about? Like, how did, it, how did this whole thing come to pass? What's the magic that you guys do? Or what's the formula that you guys use to get people through this? And I would tell you, you know what? Life DTS, we're a full-time discipleship training school. You come and you attend for 10 months just as if you were attending college or university. The difference is we hold you accountable for what you do in your personal time. Universities don't really do that. As long as you get your assignment in, it's all good. Whereas in us, we look at what's happening in your entire life. From the time you get up to the time you go to bed, how are you using the time that God gives you every day? And when God was showing me things that I was doing with my time, things that I was doing in my relationships, that was the process that I was in where he was showing me, look, these, all these moments that are seemingly unconnected to you are actually very much connected. Um, I'm in a lifelong process. I'm not fixed. 
I'm not, you know, I'm not, every issue is not resolved. You're not looking at a perfect guy by any means, but I'm okay with being in process. I'm okay with knowing that over time, God is still going to be working on me, and in the process, he's going to be able to touch other people if I'm obedient to what he's asking me to do. And so in life, that's what we teach. We teach exactly what they said in the video. We have classes. We do outreaches like this. We have work projects. We take opportunities to serve in our community and in our church. And we take in those opportunities, we show the students, look, did you see what your attitude was in this moment? Do you see how you're not being open about this issue and you're still trying to minimize it or push it down? And you need to let it up. You need to let it out and expose that weakness so that God can actually do something in his strength. That's what Life DTS is all about. We have a thing called Student for a Day. If this program is piquing your interest at all, I want you to come talk to me at our table at the back um, after service because I would love to get you connected with being a student for a day. Even if you're not going to be a real student, maybe you want to just find out what it's about for somebody else. Maybe you know somebody that needs to come and they don't have the money. Maybe you can sponsor them. Maybe you know somebody who needs to come, but there's no way they could get the time off work, so you want to step in for them and do that. That would be so cool. So come talk to me. I'm at the table, and I would love to um, chat with you more about if you want to know the details, how do I apply, what does it look like over 10 months, what do you actually do from Tuesday to Friday. Um, I would love to chat with you about that. And to finish my story, you know, I want to put this in context for you, okay? Because discipleship is not just for people who come to a 10-month program. It's for everybody. We don't, Jesus didn't say go make Christians or go make converts. He said go make disciples. So if you're sitting in this room and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, that means you are an, a disciple. And I was um, 28 when I quit my teaching contract to do a full-time discipleship program. And people thought I was nuts. Can I tell you, people thought I was like, what are you doing? You don't even get credit for this? This isn't grad school? What are, you, what are you thinking? And I said, you know what? I'm thinking something's not right, and I want to fix it. And it's not going to get fixed unless I'm intentional. So that's what Life DTS is all about, and that's my story. And I want to encourage you, consider this as an option. You know what? Like Pastor Mark said, we live in a world that needs Jesus. It needs the hope that we carry. And if we are intentional in our process, I think that we can be carriers of that hope. So, just before I call Pastor Mark back up, I want to ask you, you know, I had to learn to put down my coffee cup. It represented what was, what I wasn't willing to give up in order for God to do what he needed to do in my life. What is your coffee cup? And what's it going to take for you to put it down so God can do what he wants to do in your life? I got a preview of Pastor Mark's message this weekend. And can I say, if we all were to apply what he's going to preach on this morning, I think it could really change our world. Maybe you can welcome me. Let's welcome Pastor Mark up to give the word this morning. I love being a guest speaker in this church. It's the best. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Joel, so much. Um, it's true. Discipleship is a process. And um, thanks so much. I, I know that spoke to, to my heart. I'm, I trust it spoke to some ears as well. And I think we all have those parts of us that we don't want to put down. 
that serve us in some way, even the, the dark sides within us that we think, oh, there's no way that serves me. Oh, there's something that's it's serving, and it's probably your sin nature. Sometimes those are the hardest things to let go of. But this morning, um, I'll change shoes a little bit. We're going to be talking about the identity of this person known as Jesus. And um, when I was in grade 10, which was a few years ago now, you know, I was made aware of some of the varying beliefs surrounding the person of Jesus. You know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I got saved at, at 14, um, in grade 8, and I uh, got connected to a local church youth group, and that's where I met Jesus for the first time. And here I was two years later in an English class, and at the start of the year in this English class, the teacher had pre-assigned seating. And what the teacher had done, we all had individual desks, but in this particular class, she pushed six desks together, and that was your table group that you would sit with for the entire semester. And somehow, even though I was in a public high school and most of our class were completely kind of secularized kids that didn't go to church, that were not church-going people from church-going families, our little table group were all these mishmash of people of these different spiritual beliefs. And so there's myself, who is this fairly newbie, two-year-old follower of Jesus. And then there was Matthew, who was a Jehovah's Witness. And there were two girls um, that were uh, they were Mormons, had been in the Mormon church their whole life, and, and you knew that they were Mormons because they would go and put their little book of Mormon and their King James Bible on the corner of their desk every day as they were setting up their pencil cases. They were um, very accurate in everything they did. Um, and, uh, and then also we had Alim at our table, and he was uh, a young uh, Islamic gentleman and uh, who I had many classes with through junior high and high school. And once in a while, we had kind of the table where most of the kids didn't show up. Maybe you guys were that table in high school. Um, but there was the one kid at the table that always showed up. And so sometimes when his table was small, he'd come hang out at our table. And he was the one kid at our table that had a completely secular background, never been to church. And he had this belief that Jesus was a good moral teacher, that Jesus was one of many ways to God, that you basically just choose whatever religion you want and at the end of the day, we'll end up in the same place. Through conversations, um, mostly around books and, and book studies and things, our faith would often come into these conversations. And I learned that not all of us had the same opinion about who this person called Jesus was. My Islamic friend Alim basically told me that Jesus was a prophet, similar to Moses, but that he was not God and that he was actually lower in status than their prophet Muhammad. My friend Matthew basically explained that to me that Jesus was the archangel, that he was an angelic being that was born on earth and became a man. The Mormon girls, I remember, would explain to me that, that literally Jesus, that what they understood about Jesus was that God physically came down and met with Mary and had an intimate sexual relationship with her. And Jesus was born. And that us too, as followers of Jesus, can be our own God in a way. And can be a God of our own planets and things. And we were sitting there and we'd have these conversations and little bits would come out, you know, this week, that week, and different conversations. And wow, 
were our opinions different? I don't think, you know, and the thing that would just really, really irk me was my Muslim friend, Alem, would always say, but it's all good because we're all serving the same God, right? When we would have these little discussions, and I was still fairly new, and the first time he said that, something in me was like, no, I don't think that's right. But I didn't say anything. And, um, but it got me thinking. I'd go, and I'd say, you know, I'd go back to my youth group, and I'd say, okay, I got a dilemma here. I got a whole room full of people that all believe in Jesus, but we all believe very, very different things. And so I had to go on this journey. What do I believe about Jesus? Why do I believe it? Is what I believe about Jesus true? Is what I've been taught with this person, Jesus, is it true? Does it bear out? I think all of us have to ask that question. Who is Jesus? And the second question is, does it matter some of these other little details? Does it really matter what we believe, some of these specific details? I would like to tell you, yes, I believe it absolutely matters. That the details are important about the identity of Jesus, specifically. It means absolutely everything. You see, the Bible tells us that we are to worship God alone, that we are to worship God. And the problem is, is if you don't believe that Jesus is God and he becomes the object of our worship, what does that mean? What do you call something that you worship that's not God? An idol. God absolutely abhorred idols. We are not to worship idols. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 4.10, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Anything we worship other than God is an idol. According to the Webster Dictionary, an idol is an image used as an object or instrument of worship. You know, this idea of worship in our society is a little bit warped. You know, the word idol, where do we hear that? Well, American Idol. You know, like it's not a word that we hear very often. But an idol is somebody that people adore, that people worship. And what does that look like? Well, have you ever been to a concert where people are screaming, where a celebrity walks by and the girls are crying because a Justin Bieber wiped his sweat off his forehead on a tissue and threw it on the ground and she got to pick it up and she's just savoring that moment? Did you know that people will buy used Kleenexes of celebrities, sweat-ridden rags, used dirty underwear? People will go on YouTube, on YouTube and on eBay and these different sites looking for such things. My underwear will be for sale at the end of this service um, to the highest bidder. No. That was my wife saying that was one step too far. Uh, and and I, I agree. I agree. So mark that from the record. That, that was never said. <laughs> we 
worship is a funny thing because I think most of us don't understand sometimes what does it mean to worship God. Culturally, it's confusing. Fanatical people worship God. That's the super, super religious people claim to worship God. No. We all worship something. The matter is, is it God or is it something else? Maybe it's our job. Maybe it's our work. Maybe it's our children. Maybe every aching moment of our life is to serve our children at the expense of everything else. Jesus should be the object of our worship. And if Jesus is not God incarnate, and we make a created being the object of our worship, then we're disobeying God. If Jesus is not God in the flesh, the word made flesh, then we're worshiping an idol. So who is Jesus? You know, the answer to this question is not simply a matter of opinion, but it's a matter of historical fact and truth that we can find in the pages of the Bible in what we call the Word of God. C.S. Lewis said that Christianity, if false, is of no importance. But if it is true of infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Likewise, the identity of Jesus Christ is not moderately important, but is crucial to us understanding who God is and following him. A few years ago, I don't know how many years ago, there was this campaign that was created by Pepsi. I don't know if any of you remember, it was called the Pepsi Coke Taste Challenge. Do you guys remember that? Do you remember you might go to an event or a concert and you'd be there and there'd be like probably some university students behind a little table, such as this one, and they say, would you like to take part in the Pepsi Coke Taste Challenge? And whenever there's things like that, I'm always like, yes, yes, woo, meet me first. I love things like that. I love to, you know, those, when I was a little kid and we had like the, the Halloween times, you'd have to reach into the boxes and try to guess what you're feeling in there. There'd be like glue and slime and icky stuff and they'd have like fake bugs. And I just love that. I don't know why. It's something about the surprise. I think it's kind of like at Christmas or your birthday when you open up a present, you don't know what's inside. I got that same kind of little shot of, of dopamine and adrenaline rush, like what is inside? So I liked the Pepsi Coke taste challenge. And uh, I'm looking for two individuals that would like to participate in the Pepsi Coke challenge today. Someone who's willing to rot their teeth. <laughs> um, Celeste is raising her hand real high, so I'll choose you. And I need someone else. Maybe I'll choose someone, sure, right back there. I'm not sure, what is your name? Iona. Awesome, Iona. So, you guys can come up to the front. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pour you each a little bit from each of these cans that have been disguised by this mysterious paper. Oh, I might spill. The board will forgive me. Our carpet is in less than pristine condition these days. So just out of curiosity, which one, who in the room 
prefers Coke over Pepsi? Raise your hand. Okay, who here per, 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 uh, prefers Pepsi over Coke? Well, I think there might be more Pepsi lovers than Coke in the room. That surprises me, because you're on the wrong side of the fence, my friends. All right, so here we go. So you guys, so the front cup here is, I think, what was it, this one? And this one is this one, the other way around? Isn't that horrible? I'm a horrible taste test challenge coordinator here. Is that right now? I feel like I'm doing a magic trick. Under what cup is the ball? Okay, here we go. So if you guys would each drink, take one sip of, or as much as you want, maybe you just down the whole thing if you feel like it. And I want you to tell me which one is Coke and which one is Pepsi. So this one's Coke and this one's Pepsi. You both agree? You're not even trying it. Oh, lover of my, of me. Okay, so can I just ask you why, Iona, do you believe that that is Coke? Because, I, I don't know, just because, like, I just love water, mostly, if anything. I, for real, like, if anything in my life, I've known, and when I drink water, like, you bless your food, I drink my water, water, like, I bless water to help me clean, and that's why. And even when, per se, if I sinned, I always just drink water and say, because if I'm an alcoholic, if I'm a recovering alcoholic, I'd rather just drink water. And that's all I drink. And I tell my brothers and everyone else to just drink water. Because <laughs> it's pure and it's clean. Yeah, I agree. So how did you know that was Coke, though, and not Pepsi? My, like my little brother loves Coke, and I would prefer to drink Pepsi, but Marty, right now, I'm here for my, my youngest brother, Marty. And that's why. <laughs> that's why. Yeah. Oh, it's all good. Yeah. Well, thank you for being here today, and and you know, and and you're here for someone else. That's amazing. That's amazing. I'm really glad you're here this morning. But um, yeah. And so Celeste, how did you? You didn't even touch this one. You. She is. She. This woman is full of certainty. Can you tell me how do you know that that first one was Coke? Um. Cause. <laughs> Because, you know, Coke is life, and I drink it a lot. Because <laughs> Coke is life, and you drink it a lot. Yeah. Well, I didn't see any polar bears swimming around in there. Are you sure? Yeah, that only happens when you drink a full can. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you have to drink the whole can. Well, should we see if they're correct? Would you help me out? I got the microphone. Unless you're an illusionist, this should be a fair... Oh... And you know what, Leona, would you help me open up this one just to show that I didn't put two Cokes here? Because I'm not that type of pastor. I wouldn't do that to you. And a Pepsi. Do you know what? You guys, good job. You guys got it. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Yeah. Somebody like to finish the Pepsi? You're welcome to take it home with you. I love, Coke is life. Have you thought of joining the marketing team for Coca-Cola? Is someone filming this and we can send it like this? This might be your big career break. The identity of Jesus is not a personal preference. It's not a, which do I like better? 
Coke or Pepsi? Which teaching on Jesus best conforms to the way that I choose to live my life and allow me to live my life the way I want to live it? Which belief structure will I follow because it's the least restrictive version that lets me feel as though I might still attain salvation in the end? The identity of Jesus and how we live our life is not about trying to find the gray areas and getting to the very edge as far as you can and living there, but you're safe because you're on this line of it. The identity of Jesus is a fact. It's truth. He is truth. And so there's truth about who he is. And we can't take whatever version of Jesus we like that makes us feel good and serves us and adopt that. We need to glean from the word of God, the Bible, the revelation about who Jesus is. And then the truth will be borne out in our relationship with him. But it's the word of God first, borne out in our experience and relationship, not the other way around. The foundation, the unchanging truth is in the word of God. And that's what, that must be our foundation. You know, this is one of the purposes that Paul wrote the letter of Colossians. It was to clarify and to spell out who Jesus was because there was confusion in many of the early churches about the identity of Jesus. Remember at this time, the gospel was largely preached and communicated verbally. You know, there was no such thing as the New Testament. It hadn't been compiled yet. But there were letters that the apostles, such as Paul were writing to the churches to clarify certain issues. And there were first-hand testimonies that were written and recorded. And at some point, these books were compiled together as what we now know as the Bible. But at this time, during the early church, there were teachers within each church that taught what they were taught by the apostles, including Paul. And letters were written, um, such as Colossians, to the church. Here in Colossians 1, verse 15, this is a mighty, mighty scripture here. I thought I was going to be preaching from 15 to 29 today. And then I started get digging into just these two lines. And I realized I could talk for four hours on just these two lines alone. It really surprised me, actually. And this is it. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. I got to tell you, these were definitely one of the scriptures that we got into in grade 10 with my Jehovah's Witness friend. This was one of his primary texts that he used um, to try to tell me that Jesus was a created being. You see, there are those who reason that since men and women are made in the image of God, and that because we have a physical body, that God must also have a physical body. You know, but this assumes that the image of God is a physical thing. Um, you know, the Bible teaches actually that God the Father is spirit. He's not a physical form as we like to perceptualize him sometimes. 
You know, the scriptures teach that God is spirit. Jesus said in John 4.24 that God is spirit. By nature, God is a spirit being. However, however a person defines spirit, the definition does not really include, include flesh and bones when it comes to Father God. This can be seen in an encounter that Jesus had with his disciples after his resurrection. You know, two disciples were walking to Emmaus. It's a, it's a place about seven miles away from Jerusalem. And they encountered a man. This was right after Jesus' death, three days after his death or so, a little bit after that. And this man, they encountered this man. He says, why are you guys so sad? Some verses say, why are your faces so downtrodden? The response of one of the disciples is, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened the, there in these days? The individual said, no. What things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, a powerful in the word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he would be the one who's going to redeem Israel. And what is more, on the third day since that took place, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb in the early morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it as the woman had said. We did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish are you? How slow to believe all the things the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things in order to enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. The two disciples ended up eventually eating a meal with this gentleman. When this guy breaks bread and in that moment reveals to the disciples that he is in fact Jesus. And then what does Jesus do? Disappears. I just love that. I know I've said this before. I feel like God has a playful side to him. Jesus is like, ta-da, gone. That's so much better than the Pepsi challenge, we tell you. So these guys are like, oh my goodness, we just saw Jesus. We've been talking to Jesus this whole time. And so they run back to Jerusalem where they meet up with the 11 disciples and they share with them what just happened. Suddenly Jesus appears before the whole group now this time. They're startled and frightened, the Bible says, thinking that they saw a ghost. Some versions say a spirit. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do you doubt? Doubts rise up in your minds. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It is I, myself, touch me and see that I am not a spirit. I'm not a ghost. I do not have flesh and bones. As you see that I, or a ghost, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. You see, God is spirit. And if spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, then God's spiritual form in the spiritual realm doesn't either as we think of it in the natural. But spirit is not so much an attribute of God as it is his very mode of existence. God acts and exists as a spirit. And Jesus said, it is the spirit who gives life. Flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life in John 6, 6, 63. 
you know, we see this through Scripture, that Jesus, that God is the invisible God. You know, 1 Timothy 1.17, talking about Jesus, says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. What's interesting is this verse in, in the King James actually says his eternal power and Godhead. That the King James defines his eternal um, nature as the Godhead, as the Trinity, as this eternal relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that has always existed. God the Father, the eternal God, the Son, the eternal Son, and the Holy Spirit, who is also eternal. You know, so many times in conversations, Alim, my friend, would say, you know, that um, that Jesus never claimed to be God. Have you ever heard that? Has anyone ever told you, you know, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. I remember both my Jehovah's Witness friend and my Muslim friend in high school repeated this often a lot. But I want to give you guys a couple scriptures here where Jesus definitively refers to himself as God in scripture. One is in John 8. Jesus is talking with Jewish followers in the temple and he says in verse 56, in chat, in, uh, verse 56 your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. How on earth have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, Jesus was not mincing words with his response here. When he said, before Abraham was, I am, he was saying, I am God. I am the great I am. And if he wasn't, why was it that people picked up stones and wanted to kill him? Back in this day, the idea of a man being equal to God in that sense or someone elevating themselves to be like God was blasphemy. It was punishable by death. And so to them, they didn't feel that they even needed to go to a court of law. They didn't even feel like they even needed to sentence him other than the sentencing he was receiving in the moment. In their eyes, he was worthy of death for even in any way equating himself equal to God. In John 10, Jesus in Jerusalem at the temple at Portico of Solomon, Jews ask him again plainly to tell them if he is indeed the Messiah. Are you the Christ or not, they ask. Jesus responds in verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. Once again, the Jews pick up stones and try to stone him. And Jesus says, answers them saying, I show you many good works from the Father, for which one of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. 
That's a good one. If anyone ever said, Jesus never said he was God. Go to John 10. I read it to them. Jesus made himself out to be God. You know, a third example I'll give you this morning is when, G- is when Jesus gave his great, the great commission. You know, something that he said was that we are to baptize believers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's very interesting. Because in that moment, basically he's equating the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to equal status. That when you baptize people, that they are being baptized into all three, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you'll see that even in the New Testament in Acts. When they come across believers, they ask them, what, ba- what have you been baptized into? Who are you, in what, whose name were you baptized? And when there were believers that were not filled with the Holy Spirit, they'd baptize them. And they'd be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When you guys grew up, did any of you guys have an image of God as an old white man with a long beard sitting on a cloud judging people? And once in a while when you did something really wrong, like when mom said, who stole the cookie from the cookie jar? And you said, who, me? She said, yes, you. And you said, couldn't be. And then you gave up your brother's name? That God might just be sitting up there holding a lightning bolt wanting to strike you down? You know, that was almost a a conceptualization that I had about God in my mind as a child. I wasn't somebody that went to church growing up. But that's who I thought of as God. That is not God the Heavenly Father. That is Zeus. (laughs) That is Zeus from Greek mythology. And what's interesting here is that Zeus is really close to the word Deus, which is the, the Latin word for God. The only difference is one letter, the Z and the D. And so sometimes I think what happens is that we take on attributes of Zeus sometimes in our understanding of who God is. And I think even throughout history, when you see God depicted often in artwork, it's more or less they're depicting Zeus, this mythological God from Greece. Even though God the Father doesn't take up a physical form, his attributes, the Bible says, are made manifest in creation and also in human beings. Genesis said that we are made in the image of God. Colossians 15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So how does Jesus become the very image of an invisible God. How does an invisible God take form? Well, John kind of explains this in the beginning of of his gospel when he says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Later in verse 14, he says, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus was born of flesh. He was a man. And this is the way that he became the image of an invisible God because he had a physical body. For the first time, God had a physical body in the, in, in, within humanity. And he is the image of, 
of the invisible God because he is God in physical form as a man. You see, he is the firstborn over all creation, it says in this verse. See, Colossians appears to address one of two of the earliest heresies in the church. One was Arianism, and another was a term called Gnosticism. Arius of Alexandria was said to be teaching that God was a created being. Gnosticism taught in a way that God created a creature just below him. And then that creature had creative capability that created a creature just below him, and so on and so forth, until the creature that created the universe, Jesus was created and created us. This was something that was floating around in the early church. And the early church fathers addressed this pretty early on, and so even does Paul. But the church fathers at the Council of Nicaea in 325 give answer to this belief, saying, the Son is very man of very man, and very God of very God. In other words, they were saying, Jesus is fully man and fully God, that he is a God-man, He is both. Scripture does not teach that Christ had his beginning when he was born in Bethlehem to Mary, but exactly the opposite. If you were here on Christmas Eve, I actually took these from my Christmas Eve service. So here we go. Micah 5.2 says that he came forth from everlasting. Another word for that is eternity. And Isaiah 9.6 tells us, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Where else have we heard this language that a son is given in Scripture? Well, John 3.16 says it very clearly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So the God of everlasting, some versions will say of ancient times, The eternal son came. For us, a child was born because he was man. But he was, but the son, the eternal son, the God, the son was given to us. When the Bible says firstborn, you know, it's using the Greek word prototokos. According to strong concordance, it means before all creation. And it and often in your Bibles, it'll use the word preeminent. Your preeminent means coming before all things. The NLT puts this verse this way. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. This was Paul's way of saying he was not a created being. He existed before there was a created being. And that he reigned supreme over all creation. Supremacy, it's kind of a big word. You know, many Bibles use a description above Colossians 1.15. They'll either be titled the supremacy of Christ or the preeminence of Christ. Because what the Bible's talking about here when it says the firstborn over all creation is his preeminence. It's centered around this concept of God's supremacy. And specifically the supremacy of Christ. And supremacy simply means holding ultimate authority and power. 
which we know that Jesus has. He said that, I have been given all authority and power over all things. You know, supremacy also means above or before, superior and surpassing of all others. Colossians 1, 16 to 17 says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him. He is before all things. There we go, the word before all things, the firstborn. And in him all things hold together. You know, another way that kind of Hebrews states this is in the opening of Hebrews in 1 verse 3 says, the Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. He sustains everything by his mighty power, by his command. When he cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Colossians 1.18, the next verse, and he is the head of the body, head of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Here we go, we see that word again, firstborn among the dead. So does that mean that he is the first person to be resurrected? Well, think about it for a second. Were there other people in the Bible that were resurrected before Jesus? Absolutely there were. Some of even the prophets of, of, of old resurrected people with Elijah. Jesus himself, the Bible records the resurrection of Lazarus. So it cannot mean that Jesus was the first person to be resurrected in, in the sense of, of that out here on earth. So he was the firstborn from among the dead so that everything, in everything, he might have supremacy. You see, Jesus was preeminent. He's supreme over everything. He holds everything together. Here, firstborn from among the dead means that he's the first to be born in glory. And did you know that we get to share in his glory? The Bible says that we are co-heirs with Christ. Isn't that an amazing thing? He was the first to be resurrected in glory. But he's not going to be the last. Because he is a family called the church that are going to be resurrected in glory. They're going to have new bodies, spirit bodies, heavenly bodies. And we're going to commune and exist with God the Father in heaven forever. But not just God the Father is going to be there. We're going to be hanging out with the Son too. Oh, and don't forget the Holy Spirit. What we believe about Jesus matters. What we believe about his nature actually does matter. Our beliefs about Jesus cannot be dictated by our own personal preferences to suit us when it best fits. How do we know about God? It's by studying the word of God and that is born out in our relationship with him. It's common for people of different faith groups outside of mainstream Christianity to claim that we serve the same God. But it just simply isn't true. Jesus is the only way to God, the Bible says. And a faith journey that denies that Jesus is Lord, rejects the supremacy of Christ, is surely going to lead to death. You know, John 14, 6 to 10, 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long, and yet you still have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. If you want to know God, you must know Jesus. The Bible must be our final authority about what we learn and know about who Jesus is. Dig into your word. Dig into, it's so accessible today. There are like hundreds of English translations of the Bible. Did you know that? You know, when you go into a Bible app, you can choose which version you want. You can read the Bible in Swahili, in Tagalog probably, in Spanish, in French. Choose your pick. Dutch. The Bible is there for our reading. We can read it in a hundred different, slightly different worded ways in English even. And... Um, It's so accessible, and that's where we must go to find and be our final authority about who Jesus is. And I'll conclude today, conclude, conclude today with Colossians 2, 8 to 10, which says this, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, which are based in human tradition and spiritual forces of the world rather than in Christ. For in Christ All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And you have been made complete in Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. God, I thank you, Lord, that you have given us answers to the deepest questions about who you are. And therefore, God, who we are as sons and daughters of Christ and God, who we are as those who are seeking God, but maybe do not have a personal relationship with you yet. And so God, I just thank you, Lord, for your word. God, I thank you, Lord, for the epistles, for the letters that Paul wrote to the churches, specifically clarifying some of these confusions about who you are. God, I thank you that we can know you. God, I thank you. God, it's such an amazing thing that we can have a personal relationship with someone that on the offset, it might seem like, how do you have a relationship with someone who you can't see, can't touch, can't hear? But God, you do touch us. God, you do speak to us through many ways. But God, especially through your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit moving through our lives. And so, Lord, this morning, God, I just pray, Lord, that we would have a deep desire to know you. God, to dig into the deeper things. God, and not just be satisfied with the surface level things. But God, that there would be a hunger that would burn in us
God, to know who you are and to follow you, to not just be satisfied and content learning about you, but God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would lead us, God, into the world to engage with our neighbors and to share the love and the hope that we have in Christ. God, show us what discipleship looks like. God, may attending Cold Lake Community Church be like a discipleship training school. God, help us to know who you are and to be obedient to your word so that we may be faithful, God, to the call that you've given us as a church to share your love and to reach our community with the gospel, teaching them to obey all that you've commanded us to do. God, may we first begin by being obedient ourselves with what you've called us to do. God, I thank you for your love and your peace and your grace. God, I pray, Lord, that we would dwell in those things. God, that we would dwell in you. That we would learn to rest in you and your grace. God, that your peace would be with us everywhere we go. And Lord, when we step outside your will, God, that we would be made aware so that we could quickly correct ourselves. God, I thank you for this week. God, I lift up Hayward now, Pastor Hayward, who's home here in Edmonton, but still suffering from some pain in his legs and resting and recuperating. God, I pray that you touch his body. Lord, that you'd remove the pain from his leg. And God, better yet, give him a new vein in his leg. God, what an amazing testimony would it be if you went to the doctor and they're like, I don't understand. The leg, the vein that we took out of your leg to do your bypasses is still in your leg. God, I thank you that you're a healer. God, I pray you continue to work a miracle in Hayward's life. And God, Holy Spirit, be with Effie. May your peace and your strength guide her and rejuvenate her in this season as she is resting and recuperating herself from a, a mighty stressful and a, an anxious time of, of being in hospitals and, and the uncertainty that comes with these types of procedures. God, be with them. Bring rest, rejuvenation to their souls and their spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope that you've been blessed by this teaching from Cold Lake Community Church. Thank you for your continued support of this ministry. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect.